0: Happy Mother's Day. Uh, To all you moms out there, I know that today is a little bit of a tricky day with Mother's Day because sometimes, uh, for some of us, as someone mentioned earlier on their way in, they said, in our home, this is a holy holiday. So uh, we've got that side of it, and then for others of us, it's a difficult day. Uh, Maybe we've lost a mom or we have tried to be a mom for a long time and have been unable to do that. So I know it's a tricky day emotionally, so just know a mom. We love you, and for those of you who, which this is a difficult day, uh, we love you. We love you too. And and one of the things that's sort of accidentally traditional around Riverview is my notoriously bad. Uh, sele- You're already laughing. Selections of topics for Mother's Day, and over the years I've had some pretty bad topics because I don't pay attention until it's way, way, way too late, and then I realize the topic that I've chosen is poor. So I think today's selection is. Awesome. Awesome, and yet there is some debate over whether I've chosen a good pastor. So we're teaching through the book of Colossians, and I think uh, that today's topic is actually really good because I think that motherhood is actually a metaphor and a picture for what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, and it's up to you to decide if I'm right or not. So what's going to happen is um, in about, we'll just say 30 minutes, uh, you guys can let me know whether it is good of a topic or not. Not and so let's just dive right into this thing, right? Um, We're teaching through uh, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in a city called Colossae, and today we hit uh, verse twenty-four, and we're going to cover just four verses in chapter one here. So let's just read this first verse, uh, verse twenty-four. It says this: Now I rejoice. "...in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church." Now, I just want to stop right now and acknowledge something. There is so much packed into this verse, and none of it makes sense. In fact, I would argue that this verse might be one of the most confusing verses, not just in the New Testament, but maybe in the entire Bible. There's at least five things that I find weird or confusing in this this one little sentence in this verse, and see if you can spot these. There's at least five weird things. The first is that Paul mentions that he is suffering, Um, and so like he doesn't give context to what that suffering is, and so that's just weird. What is the suffering that Paul is going through? The second thing is he says, I'm suffering for you, which is the Colossians that he's writing to, but this is a church, if you remember from the first week of the series, he may not have ever been to the city. He hadn't planted the church. He he hadn't met the people. He had heard about them by reputation. But how in the world is Paul suffering for people that he's never met and never visited? That's odd. The third thing that's odd is he says he's rejoicing and he's not rejoicing in spite of his sufferings. The apostle Paul says he's rejoicing in his sufferings, which is really weird to say. Now, we've not even gotten to the really weird stuff. The two most weird things in this entire passage is Paul is saying that there is something, it appears, lacking in Jesus Christ's afflictions. So does that mean that somehow what Jesus did on the cross was not enough? There's something lacking, and the worst part is Paul is saying that he himself, the apostle, is now completing in his flesh what Jesus didn't fully take care of. You see how this is totally strange and how it's such a great Mother's Day passage? See, we're going to get there. This, I think, is one of the most confusing verses in the Bible. So let's just kind of hit the confusion head on, work our way through it, and see if we can figure out what it is that Paul is talking about. All right, so let's start by talking about Paul's suffering. What does Paul mean when he says that he's suffering? Well, we haven't talked about this yet during the series. At least I haven't heard every message given by every person. So I'm not sure if I hit, uh, someone else hit this. But in Colossians is one of what is called the prison epistles. And what that basically means is the Apostle Paul wrote these letters from prison. Uh, He wrote a bunch of letters from prison. He wrote Philemon from prison and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, and there's some debate about some others there. And, And Paul wasn't in prison for embezzlement, right, or bank robbery or jaywalking one too many times. He was in prison because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. He kept preaching about Jesus, even when he was told not to preach about Jesus, and it just kept getting him into trouble. And in 2 Corinthians, which is another letter that he wrote, right before he wrote this letter, he described what he was going through on his church planning journeys as he went around and told people about Jesus. Let me just read this encouraging passage about his life. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24, he says, five times... I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. That was part of the Old Testament law that said if you needed to lash somebody with a whip, you know, like a little calfskin whip to kind of publicly display a punishment for them, you couldn't do it 40 times, you had to do it 39. And so that's the 40 minus one. So he said, I got that, and I got that five times. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning, and that's different than how we think about it in a, you know, Le- recreationally legal estate. Uh, it's a different whole kind of story. And this has actually stones. They actually would just throw rocks at him. Um, three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil, hardship, Many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold, without clothing, not to mention, which is my favorite. This is one of my favorite things. It's like he almost gets Midwestern passive aggressive here. He goes, not to mention, on top of all of these things... There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for the churches. You see how saw, isn't that great? Now, Paul is, is going through all of this, and he won't stop. This is his life. He's suffering beyond anything I would imagine that any of us could imagine. We've all suffered in different ways, but none of us have probably been whipped 195 times publicly as a display in front of all these people we have probably not been beaten by rods publicly in front of people five times we've probably not been shipwrecked three times we've probably not had people throw rocks at us right I would dare say that most of us at some point would have said you know what I think I've suffered enough You think about Paul, he's wandering around the known world, he's planting churches, he's telling people about Jesus, and every time he does it, he suffers like this. There has to come a point where he's like, you know what, maybe it's time to retire, Maybe I've done this just enough. Like, I think Jesus would be happy with the amount that I have done, and yet he doesn't stop. In fact, he doesn't stop so much that eventually he gets thrown into prison, and he gets chained to a Roman guard, which means he can't do anything, including go to the restroom, without this guy, right? He's chained to this Roman guard. And so what does he do while he's locked up? What do you suppose he did? He kept talking about Jesus, (laughs) not only to the guards, but he got out his pen and he started writing letters to churches, including the letter we have to Colossae. And so in that sense, he is now suffering not just for the, the, the people who knew him, but he's also suffering for these people that he's writing to. Let's look at the verse again. Let's read it again. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the body. That is the church. And so Paul is chained to a Roman guard. He's suffering as he's writing this letter to the Colossians. And so in a sense, he's suffering not just for them, but for everyone who would ever read this church or ever read this letter. And it was what? He called it his joy to do so. Now, most of us would not say that we have joy in the midst of suffering or, or in suffering. We might say in spite of the suffering, in, in, this, in this pain that we're facing in our life, we can also have joy. We tack it on as I can have joy on top of this thing or in spite of this thing. But Paul says, I have joy in this thing. In this suffering, it is my joy. It, I consider it, like the, the, the author James says in, in the book of James, I consider it pure joy when I face Trials of many kinds, and I think that the key to that joy is in the really weird stuff. When he says, "In a, I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for His His body," that is the church. Somehow, Paul's suffering is completing something for the church that was lacking, and because he's completing the thing that was lacking, he could rejoice. Now, what is that? Well, I think the next three verses actually tell us what it is, and they shed light on what that means. So let's go look at those, and then we'll double back. He says this in verse 25, I have become its servant. And what is its? It's the church. He just referred to Jesus' body. That is the church. So he says, I have become the church's servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And so Paul here, he says, I have become a servant to the church, not a church, not just the church in Colossae, but the church, the church universal, everyone who has ever lived, who has ever followed Jesus, including you. Paul is a servant of you. He says, I am a servant of the church universal, the body of Christ of everywhere. And he had been commissioned to this task of bringing the word of God to the church, so that the Word of God would be fully known. Now now those of you who know the Apostle Paul's story, here's the thing. He was a hyper-religious guy who believed that Jesus was a, a scam. And so he started his public ministry out, persecuting the church. All these things that were described to him in 2 Corinthians are the sort of things the Apostle Paul himself did to the church. He held the coats of the people who grabbed stones to to martyr the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And he he stood there and it says he approved of what they did. He held their coats as they stoned this first Christian martyr to death. He persecuted Christians. He dragged men and women off to jail because he was so convinced, utterly convinced, that Christianity was a scam that it was false, that it was fake, that it was untrue. And that all changed on a moment as he was walking down a road to Damascus and a bright light shone around him and Jesus out of the bright light say, hey, Saul, because that was his name. Then Jesus changed it to Paul. He says, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it was in that moment, in that experience with Jesus on the road that everything changed. And Jesus then went on to give him marching orders. And part of the marching orders were in Acts 22, verse 21, where Jesus said to him, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. (laughs) And the Gentiles, by the way, are people who are not Jewish. So what he was basically saying to Paul is you, this hyper-Jewish persecutor of Christianity, are not gonna take Christianity outside of Judaism. And and that should be good news to any one of us who is not a Jew, because he took Christianity outside of the Jewish confines to the rest of the world. Now here's the thing. Most people believe that the Apostle Paul, in his missionary journeys, his church funding journeys, traveled more than 10,000 miles, likely most of the way by foot. Now, again, big numbers like that don't make sense to us. So I went and, and, and used the internets. And, and if, if you do, I, I went to Google Maps and I typed in how long would it take me to drive from Michigan, um, from Lansing to Anchorage, Alaska and back. So if you went from here and you went to Anchorage, Alaska and back, you wouldn't have hit 10,000 miles yet. At that point, you would have to leave Lansing and drive down to Orlando and back. And at that point, you are just hitting about 10,000 miles. So the Apostle Paul traveled and suffered in this journey. He went far away, as Jesus said he would do, all the way to Anchorage and back, to Orlando and back, in, in the context of the number of miles that he traveled. And in a very real sense, he continued to suffer for the church as he did that. His imprisonment was proof that he was doing what Jesus had sent him to do. So let's go back to that Colossians passage. He says, I have become it, that's the church, his servant, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his, that's Jesus' saints. You see, the job that, that God gave Paul, that Jesus gave Paul on the road there, was to take a mystery that was hidden for ages, and to make it fully known so it wasn't a mystery anymore. By making the word of God fully known to people, you see, there's a sense in which the gospel is a mystery. The apostle Paul, 21 times in his writings, refers to the gospel in a sense as a mystery that has been fully revealed. Jesus called the gospel a secret, and that's what it was, because there was the whole story arc of the Bible from beginning to end is this. In the beginning, if you go to the very first pages of the Bible, there's a book called Genesis. Genesis means beginning. And all the way in the beginning, uh, there's these two people, the first two people, Adam and Eve, and they commit the first sin. And then God says to Eve, one day your son will come and crush the head of Satan who tempted you to sin. And people call that the first actual gospel proclamation in the Bible, happening right there in Genesis 3, telling her that one day her offspring was gonna set things right. And then you fast forward to a guy named Abraham who is really nothing special. You read about Abraham. And just He was just a guy that God picked. He wasn't remarkable at all. And God picks this guy and says, someday your offspring will be a blessing to the whole world. And again, it's a mystery. And it just keeps happening. You read the Old Testament. You see all these arrows pointing forward to this savior this Messiah. We have a Passover lamb that was sacrificed and, and its blood was shed um, and, and so that, that the, 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 the the angel of death would pass over um, that home that was protected by somehow by blood. We have this temple sacrifices and all these different things. All throughout scripture, all of it is pointing forward, and everybody wondered who is this Messiah, who is the Savior, and then the prophets got quiet. And if you get to the end of the uh, the Old Testament, what you realize is there's this 400 years of absolute silence. Prophets don't say anything; nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, all these so-called messiahs popped up in the first century, and everybody's like, "I'm the Messiah! Oh, I'm the Messiah! Oh, I'm the Messiah!" And then all these people died, and then their their movements fizzled out. And so then, along comes Jesus, and Jesus perfectly fulfills. All of the prophecies that were made over thousands of years. Jesus lives a completely sinless and perfect life. And then he does this remarkable thing. After he dies, he comes back from the dead. (laughs) After being brutally executed on the cross and buried, on the third day he rose from the dead. And this is something new. And and the mystery of who this Savior is, this mystery of who this Messiah is, is now no longer a mystery. It is Jesus. The secret of the gospel is that the Savior... Was not the savior anybody expected. He wasn't a guy that jumped up onto the throne right there to rule in Jerusalem, but he was a suffering savior. And Paul says, My job is to tell everyone that Jesus is the savior. It is no longer a secret. I know who the hero of the story is, and it's a God who suffered for us. Now look at verse 27. He says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And and I love this. He says, basically, this mystery is a glorious wealth that is not just for the Jewish people that were expecting the Messiah, but to everyone who would believe because the Jews were always looking forward to this Messiah that would one day save them and no one else was looking for this Messiah and yet the Messiah was gonna come for them anyway. And see, sometimes what happened is the Jewish people, they would just forget. They would forget that that, 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 that a promise was made to Eve who's the mother of not just the Jews, but all of us, that her offspring would crush the head of Satan for all of us. They would sometimes forget that, that, that God said to Abraham that your offspring was going to be a blessing to all the people, to the whole world. And a big part of the mysterious secret of Jesus is that he offers salvation to every single one of us who believe. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. It doesn't matter what family you grew up in. It doesn't matter what faith you believed in because of family tradition. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus offers everyone in the world salvation, anyone who believes. He saves Jews and Gentiles and Colossians and Wolverines and... (laughs) And, and, and people from Grand Ledge and, 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 and CrossFitters and, and, and couch potatoes and, and social media influencers and, and Satanists and, and liars and, and people who have abrasive personalities that you don't want to hang out with he saves anyone he, he chooses to save Jesus saves who Jesus saves and, and when any one of these people believes in him he becomes the hope of glory for them And so when the rest of their life has just fallen apart, the one thing that they can cling to is that glory awaits. That there's a hope of glory. When this world sucks, it doesn't matter. Because this world is not the end. And and all of that was why Paul was doing what Paul was doing. So now he could say from prison chained to a Roman guard, we proclaim him, that's Jesus, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone as mature in Christ. I love this. Paul says our goal is that everyone would be mature in Christ, which means they need to find out about Christ first, right? They need to find out about Christ. They need to see how he saves them. And then I, we want to, one day, when we're in glory, be able to stand before Jesus' throne and present people to him as fully mature. So we're able to say they really get it. That the gospel has penetrated every area in these people's lives. And so the way that he does this is he says he warns and teaches. And really, this is a part of the gospel that we don't talk about a lot. The gospel is, in a way, a warning. It's, it's both a temporal and an eternal warning. It's a, a temporal warning saying, listen, this life is not all there is. If you're putting all your hope in this world and what this world has to offer you and the rewards you can get here and the joy and, and, and all of that that you can get on this, you, you've missed the boat. This is, there's a warning here. There's also a warning that is eternal, that that if you don't believe in Jesus, there's eternal separation from him, that, that where you spend eternity depends on how you live in this temporal space. And so this temporal part, this little speck of your life right now matters for all eternity. And so Paul says, we proclaim Jesus who is the eternal, who stepped into the temporal because he is the bridge to both. And so the goal of warning people was to be able to present them to Jesus as mature, as perfect in Christ. He warns and he teaches and he warns and he teaches and he warns and he teaches so that he can present people to Jesus. Now I wanna stop there for a second because I wanna roll back the tape to the first week of this Colossians series if you were here. You may remember that Paul said who he wrote this letter to. Does anybody remember? I know, it's a long time ago. It was to all the saints. You remember that? And you remember what saint means? Saint means someone who has been set apart as perfect. If you're a follower of Christ, you are already that. So you are already a saint. Paul says you are already perfect. And so this is crazy. Paul basically says... He's like, I, I'm writing this letter to all those who are already made perfect in Jesus, and to them, I'm warning and teaching and warning and teaching and warning and teaching and warning and teaching so that they may be mature in Christ. So which is it? Are we perfect? Or do we need warning and teaching and warning and teaching and warning and teaching in order to be made perfect or mature? The answer is yes. It's like one of my favorite Bible verses in Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offer... Or offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And sanctified means to be made perfect. So what this verse says is Jesus has already both made you perfect, and Jesus is in the process of making you perfect. And sometimes we we want to make things fit in some nice, neat, tidy boxes. And if you can put all of God and all of theology and all of Scripture in a nice, neat box, then you don't need God. Because he is so much more than you can actually even fathom. So, yes, if you are in Christ, you are perfect right now. And you are a mess. (laughs) And he is making you perfect. And I want to stop there for a second, because sometimes we can take these things to extremes. Sometimes people think about Christian maturity like some kind of spiritual ladder and I gotta climb this thing to be perfect and to be mature and, and then I look at the person who's ahead of me and I'm like, wait, they're, they're way better than I am. They're more spiritual than I am. That, that, that per, you know, this person is more godly than I am. He's got it all figured out. I'm all the way down here and we base it based on how good that person is, right? But Christian maturity, there's a trick to this. It's less about where you are And it's more about where you're pointed. It's about trajectory, not position. Because you could be just a generally good person in this world, and you don't need Jesus for that. It's about being pointed at him, pointed at Jesus. And the other extreme that we can go to when we hear stuff like this is to think, well, man, if I'm already perfect in Jesus' sight... Then I don't have to worry about my trajectory at all. If I'm already righteous, if I'm already seated with Him at the right hand, I don't have to take the scriptural warning passages seriously. And that's why Paul says to the saints who are already perfect I warn and I teach, and I warn and I teach, and I warn and I teach. He says, I labor for this. I'm striving with His strength that works powerfully in me. I love Paul's description. He says, I labor. I strive. We would, in our culture, say, I grind. <laughs> He's like, I grind at this. And these are words that are used to describe an athlete or anybody who's trying to push things past their limits. I was watching a YouTuber uh, this week uh, on, on motorcycle riding, and she said she found out she, could, she was terrible at U-turns, And so she decided what she was gonna do is she was gonna do 100 U-turns on her motorcycle every day for a month. And you're gonna be shocked by this, but at the end of the month, she was better at (laughs) U-turns, right? You do 100 push-ups a day for 30 days, you're gonna be better at push-ups, you buy yourself a tattoo gun on Amazon, don't do that, and you tattoo uh, your mom for Mother's Day, but you do it every day. You said, Mom, this is what I'm gonna do. My gift to you is I'm gonna tattoo you every day for 30 days. Your first tattoo is gonna be terrible. Your 30th might be okay, right? You, you practice something 100 times a day for 30 days, right? And so this is what Paul's talking about. He's like, I grind at this. What does he grind at? Warning and teaching and warning and teaching and warning and teaching and warning and teaching. He's putting all of this effort in, but you notice whose strength he is using? It's not his own. I labor for this. I grind at this. Striving with Jesus' strength. It's not his own. He labors, he strives, he grinds with Jesus' strength. Jesus his suffering Savior. Now, let's take all of that confusion and let's double back to the first verse and see if we can figure out what he means. He says, Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body that is the church. What does this mean? I'll tell you what I think it means. What is lacking in Jesus' afflictions for the church. Notice he's not saying what's lacking in Jesus' afflictions to save you. He's not talking about what is is lacking in Jesus' affliction for the atonement, the thing that will save you and forgive your sins so that one day you will be with him in glory. Now that's all settled. There's nothing lacking in that at all, but there's something in Jesus' afflictions that's lacking, he says, for the church, for his body. And so the thing that is lacking is right here, The thing that is lacking is in a church filled with people who are already following after Jesus. So what is Paul saying? He's saying there's something here I'm trying to fill. And I'm doing it as I suffer, which is why it brings me so much joy. I'm completing what's lacking in the church right now by suffering. What is he saying? This is what I think. I think he's saying our sufferings are a picture of Jesus for the world. It's a picture to the church. It's a reminder to the church that we follow after a suffering Savior that gave everything for us. And so when we suffer in the church and we suffer well... And we suffer and we rejoice in that suffering, we are painting a picture, not just for the church, but for the world around the church of the Savior that we follow after. And so Paul says, because of this, I choose suffering. I choose suffering. Like I could stop this missionary journeys, and I think everybody around me would say, you know what? You did a good job, Paul, but I choose suffering. And when he says, I, I choose suffering, I don't think he's, he's, he's choosing suffering because, you know, he's just some kind of, like, I don't know, sadomasochist, right? He just wants to suffer, right? He, he, he's, he's choosing suffering because he knows that this is a picture of the gospel for the world, and he knows that it's gonna be worth it, so he chooses the hard path. Like a mom. Was that close enough? <laughs> right? Okay, okay. Now some of you are shaking your head and you're like, oh no, that was a stretch. It was the best I could do. But but what mom has not chosen a hard path, right? For the sake of their children. And, And Paul says, I choose this hard path. I rejoice in it because it paints a picture for this world around us. Have you ever met a mom? (laughs) Suffering's part of the gig. Sleepless nights when kids are infants. Sleepless nights when kids are teenagers. Sleepless nights when your kids go to college. (laughs) Being misunderstood, underappreciated, doing laborious work uh, when no one sees. But but moms choose this special kind of suffering because they know it'll be worth it, and that's what Paul's saying. That's a take that as an illustration. If Paul in prison is not an illustration for you, let moms be an illustration for you. Paul is saying, I am preaching the gospel to a world that is suffering for no reason. Isn't that our world? They're suffering and they don't know why all day every day people around us are suffering and they and and they don't know that it's because of sin that, that that has corrupted our world and i think paul in kind of a confusing verse is saying i want you to know how deeply i suffer for you so that you can see how deeply loved you are by jesus so here's the deal suffering will come if you're not facing suffering right now it's coming it's part of the human condition and it's why we needed a suffering savior in Jesus. So how are you gonna suffer? Are you gonna suffer well? Rejoicing as a picture of a suffering savior for the world. And here's the deal. If you stand for Jesus in our culture, you can be doubly sure you're gonna suffer because Jesus said, if you fought, they hated me, they're gonna hate you. <laughs> and so we suffer well. Not because it makes us look good, but so that the world can know about the Savior that we love that has saved us. So what are you gonna do? My encouragement is when you're suffering, double down on Jesus. Double down on Jesus. He's worth it. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for Scripture even when it's confusing. <laughs> and we thank you that... Uh, that scripture isn't confusing in such a way that we can never understand it but that you give us pictures here of Jesus. We thank you that we serve a suffering savior. And today as many of us are going through very difficult seasons, um, we just pray that we would double down on Jesus who understands, who knows what we've been through, what we're going through, what we will go through. And we just pray that he would be our hope of glory. That in the midst of pain and sorrow, we would know that glory awaits because one day we will be reunited with Jesus. That all of our suffering will be over, all our pain will be over, and we will be with him for all eternity. So we thank you for Jesus and we pray all of this in his precious saving name.